Our uh, speaker this evening requires no introduction. And of course, when people who are introducing speakers say that the speaker in question requires no introduction, that usually means that the introducer is going to go ahead and introduce the speaker anyway. And of course, that's exactly what I'm going to do. After all, how could I, how could I or anyone else in the field of American art history resist introducing this evening's speaker? For Ted Stebbins is a legendary curator, one of a handful of pioneers in the field who did us all the invaluable service, not only of laying groundwork for the scholarly study of American art, but then going on to make contribution after contribution toward that field's professionalization, development, and continued growth. After receiving his PhD from Yale University, Dr. Stebbins became an associate professor at the university while also serving as the groundbreaking curator of American art at the Yale University Art Museum. Following his time in New Haven, he served for over two decades as John Moore's Cabot Curator of American Paintings at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, and was then named the first curator of American art at the Fogg and the Harvard Art Museums, an institution for which he is now Curator Emeritus. He's authored over 75 publications in the field of American art, including no fewer than three major studies of the paintings of Martin Johnson Heed, a definitive survey of the history of American drawings and watercolors, important studies of artists as diverse as Washington Alston and Charles Sheeler, and landmark exhibition catalogs such as The New World and The Lane Collection, both in 1983, and The Lure of Italy in 1992. Most recently, Dr. Stebbins has edited and brought to fruition the two volumes that constitute the magisterial and long-awaited publication, American Paintings at Harvard. Through all of this, he has remained a dedicated teacher and a leading proponent of the importance of connoisseurship as it relates to American art. For this evening's lecture, Dr. Stebbins will focus his keen eye on the art of the Gilded Age. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Theodore E. Stebbins, Jr. I asked, I asked David to keep it short, but, uh, but I'm glad he did just what he did. Uh, so, David, thank you very much for the uh, introduction. Uh, tonight I'd like to talk about the art of the Gilded Age, uh, one of my favorite uh, subjects, and uh, a, a wonderfully complicated one. I'll try to, I'll try to give you my major uh, thoughts on it. Uh, the, uh, the Gilded Age is roughly the period from the end of the Civil War uh, to the mid-1890s. Uh, it's a period somewhat like ours in many ways. It's a time when, uh, pr when pride, vanity, greed, and corruption uh, 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 were all out there in force competing with idealism, honor, and charity. Uh, modern America was born in the years after the Civil War. Uh, it grew directly out of it. It was a period when, just as now, when the political battles were fierce and the two parties uh, equally divided, time when the rich were getting ever richer and more vulgar. Uh, it was a period of celebration and expansion, but also one full of longing for past times, the slower rhythms uh, of the past. A public discourse dealt with progress on one hand and mourning the Civil War dead on the other. It's a period of two minds, uh, like our own, which has been called a second Gilded Age. Um, this seems only partially accurate because the original Gilded Age was a time of, that just changed on its own. Um, uh, this seems only partially accurate for the, the original Gilded Age was a great, I saw a great flowering of the arts in America. The painters, Whistler, um, uh, Sargent, Winslow Homer, and so many others, the architecture of Richardson, the writing of Mark Twain, Henry James, the work of William James, uh, Walt Whitman, uh, Emily Dickinson, one goes on and on. It's a rich, rich period in the arts, which I'll talk about. And if the equals, 
God bless you. If the equals of those figures are uh, with us today, I haven't, uh, I must have missed them uh, somehow. Uh, today, I'll cover three main areas that seem key for this period. First, a little look at Winslow Homer and Mark Twain. Uh, secondly, the aftermath of the Civil War, which, as you'll see, when the aftermath went on and on well into the early 20th century. I'll conclude uh, with a comparison of John Singer Sargent and Thomas Aikens. Oh, here, you probably know, but the, uh, the breakers on the left, two of the emblematic mansions of the period, breakers on the top left, uh, Biltmore on the top right, bo uh, in Asheville, breakers, of course, in Newport, both built by the Vanderbilts. Vanderbilts are somehow the uh, symbolic, fam uh, symbolic family for the period, for the excesses of the, uh, the age. They had more gilding on their furniture and in their homes than uh, any place else I can think of. Uh, I'll also begin briefly with a look at Sargent and this painting. Sargent was the most popular and the most highly paid uh, painter uh, of the Gilded Age. His portrait that you see here of the three Wyndham sisters shows off his talents at, at their best. Here he orchestrates the this thing when you get when you put anything warm on it, it anyway, uh, the, the Wyndham sisters uh, is a portrait of these three sisters and their mother. If you look in the background, you see a portrait of their mother. So it's a family portrait. It's one of the most flattering and graceful celebrations of wealth and beauty that we know. The Times of London called this work the greatest painting ever executed. I love that. The, the excess of their words uh, echoes the excesses uh, of the period and the splendor of Sargent's own brushwork. The underside of the Gilded Age uh, is, was rarely recorded by the major painters, of course, but it was the subject of, uh, uh, of a, new, a number of powerful uh, photographers, including the pioneer Lewis Hine, contemporary of Sargent's, who began his work about the turn of the century. Hine photographed uh, Ellis Island, uh, the rural poor in the south, the tenements uh, of the Irish, uh, uh, and so on. And you see here on the right this, uh, this wonderful, wonderful photo by Hine. Uh, it's exactly the same subject as the sergeant. It's a family, it's a family portrait with the mother, and the photographer surely spent as much time composing it, lining up the nine children in exactly the, uh, uh, by size and age, uh, with as much care as Sargent uh, composed uh, his. I've always wondered, I love this little, the little kid here. Can you see him? Uh, he's the only one, hands in pockets, smiling out, making direct contact with the viewer, he's the only one, I guess, it's purely a guess, that might have made it out of this uh, bad situation in the Carolinas. Uh, the, both, uh, both artists had something very much in mind. Uh, Sargent's intentions were to glorify his sitters, of course, and to help them understand that they and their like, and their family particularly, would rule forever. Nothing would ever change, whereas Hines' purpose was change. He hoped by bringing the plight of the poor to public attention that uh, governments and others would see the need for change. Uh, Hines' photo always makes me think of Huck Finn. Uh, it, it, you forget how, in, uh, how Mark Twain and Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer deals with the rural poor. Uh, he, uh, Huck writes, uh, Twain writes so gracefully that you forget that he's really writing about a very degraded part of society most of the readers had no uh, real familiarity with. Uh, uh, Twain, along with Theodore Dreiser a little later, was one of the few writers who dealt with the, the poor members of the society. Homer, whose work you see here, was a painter of rural life, an exact contemporary of Twain's, and when I see his, 
his pictures of these barefoot boys in the country, I just can't help thinking about, uh, uh, about Hawk and Tom. Twain was a central figure in the Gilded Age. He actually coined the term the Gilded Age in his novel of 1873 that he co-wrote with Charles Dudley Warner. Uh, it's a pretty bad novel, but um, all, all that's really worth remembering uh, is the title, which has given the name uh, to the period. Uh, more importantly, uh, Twain dealt effectively uh, with almost all the major issues of the time in his great novel, Huckleberry Finn. Uh, strangely, I've never been able to understand how this book became a children's book. Uh, it, uses, it uses humor and irony to describe the plight of the runaway slave, the, uh, the unlikelihood of racial friendships, the plague of alcoholism, the need for educational reform, the terrible cruelty of parents to children, and the brazen dishonesty of con men like the Duke and Dauphin, two complete phonies play a major role in the book, who function here as fictional stand-ins for Boss Tweed and Jay Gould and others in real life uh, New York. Here you see at the, uh, get back there, uh, here you see uh, the Duke and the Dauphin on the left, the original edition of the book here, uh, uh, Hawk and Tom uh, laying about, making friends, and Huck's dad falling down uh, drunk, which he often uh, was. Returning to Homer for a second, uh, Winslow Homer, as you know, got his start as a visual artist for, the, for Harper's Monthly Magazine, the first large-scale illustrated periodical in America. All these institutions uh, uh, flowered after the war. After the war, the, uh, the, the northern economy, the northern population was ready for new ideas, new institutions, and so all sorts of things uh, uh, started up, including Harper's. Uh, Homer typically, in his early illustrations, portrayed the happy, wholesome side of American life, as you see in his Thanksgiving Day uh, on the left, a happy family gathered around the table. But from the start, uh, unusually, he also showed his awareness of the poor, uh, as you see in his Christmas illustration on the right. The Civil War brought Homer new opportunities as it brought, as I suggested, to the entire society. Uh, Homer made his name through illustrations of the war, like the one on the left, uh, various battles and camp scenes. But he was also keenly aware uh, of the costs, the human costs of the war, as you see in his woodcut on the right, the woman now having to drive, uh, the husband having lost his arm uh, in the war. Now, this is as, as far as Homer in a popular magazine could go. Uh, the photographer, photography also blossomed after the war and during, and the photographer could go further in showing the real horror of war. Uh, these photographs of Matthew Brady and Timothy O'Sullivan and others weren't widely uh, exhibited, but they were, they, for those who saw them, uh, they understood uh, the terrible costs uh, of these wars, and uh, photography, photography found its, its first great subject uh, here at this time. This brings to mind Another major figure of the war, Walt Whitman. This is Aiken's uh, portrait of Whitman. Uh, Whitman's the greatest of our poets, for me, for, to my eye. Uh, we think of him as the, the celebratory uh, poet of, demo of, of democracy, but um, the optimistic voice uh, for the new America. But uh, Whitman, interestingly, spent his years, his, the war years, as a volunteer in the uh, military hospitals of Washington, D.C., where he was a volunteer nurse and where he read to the, uh, to the, to the dying and wounded soldiers, uh, took dictation, uh, helped them write letters back to their parents and sweethearts. He played a uh, wonderfully 
personal charitable role, and he wrote a series of notes uh, about his experiences, which are called Specimen Days, Specimen Days, which he didn't publish till 1877, the most moving uh, anti-war tract uh, of the period. Now, dodging back to Winslow Homer for a second, we recall that Homer uh, him, taught himself to paint during the war. He'd been an illustrator before, started painting about 1863, and was really a self-taught uh, painter. And the years just after the war produced some of the most moving essays in paint uh, on the meaning of the war. On the left, uh, Prisoners from the Front, which I'm sure you've seen, um, at the Metropolitan Museum in New York shows a young Union general confronting three Confederate prisoners, each one a, a summation of his type and class. On the left, a simple boy from the country, then an old man, a, a, probably a draftee who felt very lucky to be alive, and then a young officer, a southern officer, who has somehow retained his swagger even under these conditions. Uh, Homer captures the pathos of the moment as the Southerners throw down their weapons and General Barlow explains the generous terms of their surrender in a way echoing uh, the actions of Grant when he accepted uh, Lee's surrender. A companion, a companion work is Harvard's very moving brush harrow on the right where two farm boys uh, probably one guesses in the South, uh, after the war, without uh, fathers or uncles to guide them, try to break up the soil using a harrow made of branches and sharp sticks, as they lack a modern iron harrow, which was by then in use in every up-to-date farm. This, so it's a almost hopeless task, and the old, the old horse is not anxious to do this anyway, and if you look carefully at the painting, the old horse is an army horse itself, a veteran, and it has a U.S. stenciled on its rump. So it's very, very uh, distinctively and purposely a picture about uh, the war. Uh, Homer's Civil War uh, or post-Civil War paintings are very much about sorrow and loss rather than being uh, celebrations of victory. Uh, Homer was also the uniquely, almost uniquely colorblind in matters of race. Uh, this was a highly prejudiced period when satirical racist prints, like the one at the upper left, were widely, widely distributed by Courier and Ives, the most popular printmaker of the day. These prints weren't designed just for a few, but for widespread audiences uh, uh, in the North. Uh, after 1877, Jim Crow laws institutionalized racism in the South, mandating that freed slaves, the freed slaves would not be granted voting rights or anything like equal schools. Uh, but after the war, it was at least no longer illegal for, Afri for African Americans to be taught to read. So in the painting, the Homer at the upper right, uh, you see the young mother teaching her children to read while the illiterate, presumably illiterate grandmother sits there looking away, unable to uh, participate. Then in, at the bottom in Homer's great painting of the cotton pickers, uh, you see him painting two stalwart young black women doing the same backbreaking work that they would have done when they were slaves. But one senses that these women, at least the way Homer paints them, have the strength to somehow get out of those feels. Every kind of art flourished during the Gilded Age, and art had power. The greatest caricaturist and cartoonist of the age was Thomas Nast, who, like Homer, worked for Harper's Magazine. He probably had more influence than any other artist. Nast played a major role in electing Lincoln and then Grant, and his, in the around 1870, his relentless depiction of Boss Tweed in New York uh, led the corrupt politician to offer him $100,000 to stop making his drawings and publishing them. Uh, 
uh, uh, Nast refused. That was a lot of money then. Uh, uh, Nast refused. He relentlessly scoured Tweed, as you can see, dozens and dozens of drawings like this were published, scoured Tweed in the press, and Tweed in and one of the few victories for art, Tweed in 1873 was convicted and sent to prison. Uh, the, the, the Civil War and Civil War memories uh, shaped the Gilded Age. Uh, memories of the war remained powerful through the century, and obviously they're felt even today. There was a wonderful article in last week's New Yorker about this, but uh, the war sh uh, even today affects our politics, uh, obviously debates about the Confederate flag and so on. The expansion of industrial might in the North during the war set the stage for a great economic boom in the North, and the, and the concept uh, of the war uh, shaped our ideas and institutions. Memorials to the uh, Civil War dead were built throughout the 19th century and uh, even beyond. The lower right, you see Harvard's Memorial Hall. Uh, Harvard uh, was one of the, Harvard acted with its usual efficiency in raising money for Memorial Hall. The, uh, the development office there has always been uh, the best of its kind. And uh, uh, they raised a ton of money. Our Memorial Hall was completed in 1877 memorializing the 136 Harvard men who lost their lives fighting for the Union. Uh, the building itself is one of the greatest Ruskinian Gothic buildings in America, very little appreciated, not in many Boston guidebooks. One of my uh, great favorites, and I, keep, I write the president uh, once every few months urging her to make Memorial Hall available for the public, uh, which it's not. Um, the freshmen eat there. Uh, the freshmen all uh, call it Annenberg because Mr. Annenberg helped fund its uh, or funded its reconstruction. Uh, and they have no idea of the history, and it's uh, it's a tragedy for someone who loves art and history. That seems a tragedy to me. Uh, Memorial Hall house also houses one of the great great collections of stained glass in the nation, uh, as you can see in the photo on the lower left. The upper right you see the Shaw Memorial, very close to here, depicting Colonel Shaw and his black regiment. Uh, the Shaw Memorial is one of those objects that has retained its life and meaning right up to the present, I think. It looks great now. It's moving. It's beautiful. Uh, people respect it, uh, except for occasionally taking the sword. Uh, the, uh, after 30 years of planning, the Shaw Memorial was unveiled in 1897, so more than 30 years after the war. The war is still a very powerful force. It's Boston's greatest outdoor sculpture, without any doubt. Very different uh, than, uh, than New York's uh, monument to General Sherman at the upper left, gilded for the Gilded Age, not completed in until uh, several years into the 20th century, and a, a much more traditional, not nearly as powerful work, also by St. Gordon's. Since Trinity Church was erected in 1875, there's been no doubt that he was the greatest American architect in Boston or anywhere else. Uh, his voluminous, powerful buildings reflect the man himself, you see at the upper left. Uh, and here you see the famous uh, Ames Gate Lodge at the upper right. Some of you are very familiar with that building. And uh, Harvard's Seaver Hall at the lower left uh, where I teach. I'm always trying to tell my students about the glory of being in this building. I'm not sure the total effect. Uh, and Trinity, um, like Memorial Hall, has an amazing collection of stained glass. Another one of my lost causes is trying to persuade people that stained glass is as important a medium as any other in art. Very few people have believed me up to date, the, uh, but I'm thrilled that the MFA has a variety in its new American wing, has several absolutely stupendous stained glass windows on view by Louis Comfort Tiffany and John Lafarge. One of the Lafarges uh, is on the right. And on the left is the 
great window, I think one of the greatest works of art in America, the great uh, Christ preaching window at Trinity, Trinity that you only see as you leave the church. Uh, it, they, when it was restored a few years ago, I had the pleasure of seeing it up close, and it's, it's made with glass, blue glass, blue and green glass nuggets, each one a slightly different color, each one a little larger than a golf ball. It was incredibly uh, impressive and beautiful. This is an age when arts uh, came to the fore for the first time. Uh, money and art are always connected. Uh, again, my students hate the fact that that's true, but um, artists require patronage, and it's always been so. During the Gilded Age, new money uh, combined with new national pride and an increasing ease of travel to Europe uh, meant more and more European travelers came home with tales of the Louvre in Paris, uh, the National Gallery in London, uh, and so on. In 1870, uh, groups of wealthy art lovers founded the Metropolitan Museum on the top here, it's the original Met, and founded the Museum of Fine Arts on the bottom. That's our, our MFA, which used to stand exactly where the Copley Plaza Hotel is now in Copley Square. It'd be wonderful if the museum were still there. It would change the city. Uh, but the museum got too big. This wonderful building, fantastic building it was in, only lasted until the erection of the Evans Wing in, I think, 1909 or 16. Someone will tell me. Uh, New York, from the start, was always the uh, livelier place for art. The art scene was livelier. New York had more money, and especially more new money, which is extremely helpful when it comes to building institutions uh, and collecting art. This, at the top, you see a series of scenes in New York's 10th Street studio, uh, where many of the major painters had their studios. Art now became fashionable. Art exhibitions were places to be seen, and, the, uh, and artists were people who were respected in the culture. Here, the little object you see on the top right uh, is made of gold, perfect for the Gilded Age. It's not exactly a work of art, but it represents one of the most important moments in our history. It's the golden spike, the ceremonial last spike driven by Leland Stanford when the Central Pacific, uh, Central Pacific Railroad, which he owned, uh, joined up with the Union Pacific at Promontory Point, Utah, in, on May 10th, 1869. This, this was the exact moment when the nation was physically unified, and it's the exact moment, I think, that the Gilded Age began. The Union, the Union Pacific, the one coming from uh, the East, became the symbol not of triumph, as one might have expected, but of corruption, as it was at the heart of the Credit Mobilier scandal just three years later. Congressmen were being bribed, stocks manipulated, and so on, and the company went bankrupt. A.J. Russell's photograph made that day above, and Thomas Hill's painting of the same scene uh, 12 years later portray exactly the same moment, but in different ways. As you can see, the photograph includes only men, all roughly dressed, all wearing hats to protect them from the sun. And with the crews, you can see the, the crews, two bottles of champagne being held out, and probably the two chief engineers shaking hands in the middle. But this is, that's not the way that Leland Stanford wanted the scene portrayed. So, so 12 years later, uh, here he is, the center of attention, fully dressed, with all his cohorts, partners, and cronies standing around. He's got the mallet in his hand, which he's going to drive the golden spike uh, with. Uh, several fashionable women have made it out there to Utah. And uh, uh, to, to its credit, this, the painting includes several of the Chinese laborers who worked so hard to, uh, to build the railroad. Uh, so there's truth. There's truth in both the painting and the photograph. Uh, and uh, even as different as different as they are, as you can see from these charts, in 1870 above, after the Golden Spike, there was just exactly one line 
going from uh, Kansas City to the west. Uh, 20 years later, 1890, below, you see the terrific expansion of the railroad network. Uh, this played a key role, key role in uh, changing the nation. The railroads, more than anything else, were the key to the great wealth produced in the Gilded Age. They brought copper east from Montana, silver, thank heavens, from Nevada, uh, wheat and beef, and especially oil from the Midwest, and they carried a wide variety of supplies and people um, to the West. Railroad ownership was the foundation of many fortunes, uh, including Cornelius Vanderbilt, James J. Hill, Leland Stanford and his partners, uh, but they were equally important to Rockefeller and Frick and many others because they needed um, control of the railroads to ship the oil um, around the country. The, the effects of the railroads uh, were felt everywhere and were celebrated in popular prints like this one by Carrer and Ives. You feel here the excitement uh, the sense of manifest destiny, the railroad steams directly west toward the Rockies, little, leaving a little village behind and leaving the two uh, Native Americans. Uh, leaving, leaving the two Native Americans uh, in literally in the smoke, in the dust. Uh, taste, by this, at this point for the first time, taste changed dramatically, uh, and popular taste and the taste of the intelligentsia and upper class diverged uh, for the, this is a perfect example of popular taste, but uh, for the wealthy uh, who were interested in fine art, the now, the paintings of people like Albert Bierstadt, whose work you see on the upper left, a work uh, suggesting America as an Eden, America as perfectible and perfect and painting with this clear, crisp style, that's, that represents uh, pre-Civil War painting at its best. But now, uh, taste changed, and uh, Bierstadt and his, con his contemporaries were rejected in favor of painters like George Innes and Albert Pinkham Ryder, uh, whom you see at the bottom and the right. For them, uh, nature was more sullied uh, dark and essentially unknowable like human nature itself. So this goes to my point. On one side, celebration and money-making. On the other side, serious doubts. Also the beginning of psychology in America uh, with the work of William James at Harvard. This was an age that produced a dozen or more major painters. Uh, each one made art that seems superficially to be realistic, but is in fact about memory and nostalgia about other better worlds. Uh, my, one of my favorites is Martin Johnson Heed. You see the orchid at the top. Uh, he painted magical views of the tropics, a, dreamed, uh, a dreamlike fairyland that no one could actually experience. Uh, William Harnett in his series, After the Hunt, on the right, uh, reminisces about the beauty of the old days when men and game were abundant, when men, sorry, when men were men and game, <laughs> and, and game was abundant, when things were made by craftsmen and not by machines. And Winslow Homer in his late work turns to the sadness and the symbolism of the sea as he reminisces about life and death uh, in a series of the remarkable late marine paintings that you all uh, know. Once the money was made and the new city house built, uh, an activity perfectly described in William Dean Howell's wonderful book, The Rise of Silas Lapham, the Gilded Age millionaire felt the need to present his wife and himself as they wanted to be seen, and freak, which frequently was quite far from how they actually looked. They, they, they would seek out the services of the best portrait painter they could afford and who was available in Boston, New York, Philadelphia, or wherever in Europe uh, they happened to be traveling. 
there were, there were about 50 painters in the world, around, around the world, competing for these commissions. All of them reasonably talented, and all of them anxious to make their sitters look as tall, elegant, uh, aristocratic as they possibly could, to make the paintings look as much as possible like Van Dyck or Velasquez. <laughs> they included James McDeal Whistler in London, whose portrait of a lady you see on the left, uh, William Merritt Chase uh, in New York, the lady in the black dress, uh, Anders Zorn, the Swede who would travel anywhere the money was right, uh, the uh, man in white tie, and Giovanni Baldini, the Italian who worked largely in Paris. They were all good. But the highest priced and the most sought after of the Gilded Age painters was undoubtedly John Singer Sargent, the Anglo-American who commuted, commuted between Boston and London. What exactly was Sargent's gift? Through his brilliant brushwork, he gave his sitters life. Each sitter seems capable of moving an arm, winking an eye, turning his head. Sargent somehow eliminated the veil that falls between the viewer and most paintings. All of the painters flattered, but Sargent was the supreme flatterer. What was truly exceptional was his gift for suggesting the allure, the sexuality, uh, the life of the sitter. He also had a keen, a keen instinct for class. Other painters thought that all rich were essentially the same. Uh, Sargent knew that each, uh, in each class there were many different types, and he was particularly good uh, with different nationalities. Uh, on the left, to give you an example of this, on the left is Sargent's Lord Dalhousie. Lord Dalhousie, the scion of a great English family, the son of the Governor General of India, an embodiment of privilege and class if there ever was one. This is a brilliant work, a study of, study of whites on whites. Uh, and it, ha it has its own special realism. If you look closely here, you'll see that his top of his forehead is white because he wears a hat that usually protects him from the sun. Um, Sargent, born in Florence, living in London, but always an American citizen, understood the difference between the English aristocracy and the American. On the right is Boston's Henry Lee Higginson, portrayed in somber tones. You feel that Dalhousie might blow away with the wind, while Higginson is as rock solid as Trinity Church. His portrait of 1903 includes no suggestion of his vast philanthropies, but rather speaks to the formative event of his life now, the portrait of 1903, he looks back in the portrait and holds his favorite artifact over his lap, his Civil War cloak, and on his forehead, his right forehead, uh, proudly bears uh, the scar from the saber wound he suffered in Virginia in 1863. Uh, Major Higginson uh, represents Gilded Age Boston at its very best. Boston's Gilded Age was never as gilded as elsewhere. <laughs> The, we, we, we always have this long-lasting puritanical sense, and I think some sense of right and wrong that may be lacking elsewhere. Uh, through his firm, Lee Higginson and Company, uh, he made a ton of money for himself and his clients because he understood railroad bonds and copper mines better than anyone else. But he was as unlike a Vanderbilt uh, as he could be uh, for he was a modest man who believed in giving back everything he could and everything he had, and he did so. He built institutions, including the Boston Symphony. Uh, as you know, he gave Harvard the vast tract of land called Soldier's Field, Soldier's Field, named uh, for his six great friends who died in the war. Uh, Higginson seems to me the exemplary Bostonian of his day, even though he's very little known, the last book about him was A Life and Letters of 1921. Uh, so it said, Sargent was especially good with women. He painted beautiful women beautifully, as one sees in his portraits of Mrs. Charles Inches at the MFA on the left, and of, and of, uh, uh, of Nancy Astor uh, on the right. 
with less beautiful, uh, he, painted, he painted character and energy. On the right is Mrs. Boyt, uh, the mother of the four little Boyt girls, uh, and a very elegant portrait uh, making where he makes the most of her dress, her head, her expression. He gives her a sense of energy. He doesn't pretend that she's a great beauty. Occasionally, he failed, I think, as with Gladys Vanderbilt on the left. He somehow was unable to find a spark in her, despite <laughs> despite, uh, despite her lavish surroundings. Sargent also uh, struggled, I think. I hope this won't shock you, but I think Sargent struggled quite a bit with his portrait of Mrs. Gardner on the left. Uh, uh, it was a painting that uh, Isabella Stewart Gardner was Sargent's great friend and a major patron, but he spent uh, sitting after sitting on it and never quite, uh, he must have longed to please her, to capture her legendary liveliness and her strong character, but he ended up painting a kind of uh, strange, iconic, slightly lifeless uh, portrait. Not a terrible picture, but not as uh, great as some others. Mrs. Gardner was a challenge. You see her uh, photograph in the middle, and on the right, an Andrew Zorn picture, which is quite wonderful. It's at the Gardner Museum, which shows her as all energy, but with no likeness. Uh, uh, Jack, Jack Gardner has always been portrayed as something of a fool uh, for not allowing his wife's portrait to be exhibited after his debut at the St. Botolph Club in 1889. But I think maybe Mr. Gardner actually recognized that it wasn't, uh, didn't show either the sitter or the artist to their best, and so he just kept it home. Uh, if you compare Mrs. Gardner to another uh, portrait of another woman collector, uh, Henrietta Raphael in London, you see the difference. In, the, in Mrs. Raphael, he was fearless, posing her with some of her favorite objects, uh, uh, portraying her twice in one work. You see her, and then you see her. He painted her again in, in profile in the mirror, painted two of her favorite uh, sculptures, uh, and uh, expressed this amazing uh, kind of vibrancy, beauty, and energy that he uh, failed to do with Mrs. Gardner. Uh, Mrs. Gardner was one of the first of, was the, the first of her generation to build a museum to house her collection. The Fenway Court is, see on the upper left, is very plain on the outside and rich and captivating on the interior like its builder. Uh, here you see the exterior, then the, cap the great courtyard and uh, the Titian and then the Gothic room on the right where her portrait uh, hangs. Robert, Robert barons around the country seem to understand instinctively that the best way to establish their reputations for posterity was to leave great institutions behind, ones that carry their names. Leland Stanford built a university. The, the Stanford students a few years ago voted to name the teams, the nickname the teams of Stanford the Stanford Robber Barons. <laughs> but, but the, not surprisingly, the, the trustees uh, uh, rejected that idea. Uh, and so uh, the Stanford teams are still called the Cardinal, which much less expressive. Uh, uh, many of them, uh, many of the, the uh, very wealthy, like Frick and Morgan, turned to art collecting, the building of museums. Uh, many of the continues to this day. It's amazing. Just as now, collecting art opened new doors for the newly rich, enabled the crude uh, to present themselves as cultivated people. Uh, never, again, never has social climbing been put to such good use. <laughs> uh, closer to home, at the top left, you, we have the example of William Hayes Fogg, a poor boy from Maine, made his fortune uh, in the uh, China trade, and then gave the money to Harvard to build this art museum. The top right, you see the interior of the Fogg's apartment, the Fogg's house in New York. All these paintings were hung. Uh, so their Fogg's are minor, but look what's happened to their, uh, their nice gift. It's uh, 
had great effect, and the Fog name is now famous for the quality uh, of the art. The, the uh, Frick is at the lower right, and the newest of this genre, the Eli Broad, Broad, rhymes with road, Broad, the Eli Broad collection. I can, you can't say broad. Uh, Eli Broad collection is now on view in this uh, dazzling abstract building at the lower left, and uh, something I very much want to see. I've been reading a lot about it. Uh, Henry James totally understood the urge uh, of the wealthy to buy art. And uh, the, in the American, he has Christopher Newman, Christopher, named for Christopher Columbus, New Man, uh, uh, wandering to the Louvre, uh, uh, collecting copies of uh, great paintings that he could take back home. In the Golden Bowl, uh, Adam Verver, Adam, again, uh, became a serious collector of old masters and uh, built a museum back in American City as the collector, as other wealthy real Americans would do in Kansas City and Detroit, Chicago, all over the country. I'd like to close with a brief comparison of the, two, I think, the two greatest masterpieces of the Gilded Age uh, in America. Um, two greatest masterpieces of the Gilded Age uh, in America. The sergeants, whoop, sergeants, El Haleo on the left at the Gardner and Thomas Aiken's Gross Clinic in Philadelphia. Both were painted, both paintings were painted on spec, uh, not commissioned. Uh, Aiken's, with his work, was trying to establish his reputation uh, in Philadelphia. Uh, uh, Sargent was trying to do the same thing a few years later uh, in Paris. They're painted within six years of each other. The two works are similar in size and ambition and in their color schemes, both mainly using blacks, whites, and grays with touches of red highlights. Uh, both feature a central spotlit figure. Both depict performances uh, where we become spectators uh, in a crowd of viewers. Both are shocking. Both deal with the human body and the implication of sex. Dance of the Gypsies, as El Haleo was originally called, evolves the beat uh, of the dance. We hear the guitars and castanets. We feel the sway of the bodies. Um, gypsies were known for living outside convention. They exalted superstition and sensuality. They represent the allure of Europe, the rule of the emotion. Uh, the picture was originally bought, very bold purchase, by Thomas Jefferson Coolidge of Boston, 1882, purchased it from the Paris Salon, and then about 20 years later, Mrs. Gardner, his relative by marriage, coveted it and built the Spanish cloister that you know in the Gardner Museum, and he gave it to her. A very nice Christmas present. Uh, uh, Aikens, on the other hand, with the, the clinic of Dr. Samuel D. Gross, is a painting that celebrates science and rationality. Dr. Gross was the pioneering surgeon of his day in Philadelphia. Uh, here, he pauses for a moment to explain to his audience exactly what he's doing, holding his scalpel, uh, bloody scalpel, in his bloody right hand. We can see the posterior of the patient. We don't, we don't know whether it's a male or female. The only woman in the picture sits at the left, her hands raised, but not uh, beating to music as in El Haleo, but in horror as she observes her son or daughter on the operating table. All the men here, uh, all the figures, uh, all the men in the, uh, uh, in the Gross Clinic are professionals. They're all at work studying or participating in the operation, just as all the figures in El, El Haleo are professionals doing their job. These two paintings represent uh, Boston and Philadelphia, romantic, literary uh, Boston, uh, scientific Philadelphia. They give us another clue, uh, as an aside, why Philadelphia had an easier time uh, in the 20th century in accepting the cold, hard facts of Cubism. Uh, El Haleo was a success, uh, and El Haleo was a was a, was a 
successful when it was exhibited at the uh, uh, Paris Salon. And Aiken's Gross Clinic was a failure. It was rejected by the Centennial Fair of 1876 and hung, as you see on the left here, in the medical building uh, of the fair. Aikens and Sargent saw themselves very differently. As you see here on the right, Sargent portrayed himself as a gentleman looking down at the viewer, while Aikens looks out at us with all the wear and tear, the years of neglect showing in his bent head and his forlorn expression. Sargent flatters himself as he had flattered his sitters. Aikens paints his vulnerability with honesty and courage the same way he'd painted his sitters. Sargent worked for money, almost everything, um, a great many of his paintings were done on commission. Uh, he made a ton of money, enough so that he could retire from portrait painting uh, by, um, by the turn of the century or earlier. Uh, Aikens painted people, had very few commissions and painted only people uh, he admired. Uh, so it was his choice to paint them. Uh, uh, the last two images, Aikens uh, on the left painting his wife, Susan McDowell Aikens, uh, Sargent uh, on the right uh, uh, painting Sarah Dunham, and both seated in chairs, uh, youngish, youngish women, but painted completely differently, Aikens uh, painting the time-worn, uh, bent look of his wife, Sargent painting, uh, the glamour, the limitless youth and future uh, of his sitter. Uh, I, was, I always, at the end of my Gilded Age course, I always try to persuade my students that Aikens is a better painter than Sargent, but they always reject that. Uh, <laughs> the students, like the people of the Gilded Age, prefer the portraits of people without blemishes rather than uh, people uh, who suffer harm or disappointment. Thank you very, very much. <laughs>